Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. This is the Intentional Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Tansom, and it's episode 262. And today we're going to be talking about non controlled growth capital. And I think that this is just an amazing topic because so many people I hear that want to continue to grow their company, they're not in the venture capital world where they're raising seed rounds or ABC rounds, and they're also not looking to sell all of their company and the controlling interest in their company to a traditional private equity firm. And then they go and people are going to traditional banks for conventional loans or SBA loans, and that's not the type of funding source that they need to grow their business. And so there's this whole new market that has been growing rapidly in non-control growth capital. And the perfect person is on the show today, uh, Billy Amberg, who is the managing director of Corporate Finance Associates. And he's going to be talking about this entire sector of growth capital, of non-controlled growth capital, why people need it, the different terms and conditions that come with non-controlled growth capital, the types of circumstances where it's really applicable and it's going to help fuel the growth for the right reasons. And some of the things that you can do with your company, like getting your EBITDA to that next stage where you have the ability to create different exit options like private equity firms, big strategic multiples, or getting yourself to the point where your your intrinsic financial value of the company is capable of doing an ESOP. Regardless, you need to fuel your growth. And Billy's going to be on the show today to explain why that's necessary, what are the investors looking for that are doing this kind of growth capital, and then all the different uh, terms and conditions that are applicable to it. Because I want you as the listener to think through and say, okay, if you're going to fuel your growth, where is it going to come from? And then what are the implications of that growth? Anyways, I really hope you enjoy this episode. Billy is fantastic and we get really into the weeds, but I think it's necessary as you're trying to think about the pros and cons, the different kind of capital and how that impacts your role during the during the growth of the business and then what are your options afterwards. Thanks for tuning in and without further ado, here is my episode with Billy. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Billy, how are you? Doing great. How are you, Ryan? I am uh, very excited for this show. And I, I before we even kick off into it, I think you should just repeat what <laughs> you said right when we got on the call because it about sums up the craziness that we're going, what we got going on right now. Yeah, I think I mean, you said something about the six months or <laughs> yeah. Essentially, today was uh, this week and today specifically was was the day that basically half of the businesses that we've been courting decided, okay, now we want to sell our business and we want <laughs> you to do it by the end of the year. Very little due diligence and we want no all the cash outs. up front. Yeah. Yeah. No, no earn outs, outs. all the cash up front. And uh, yes, I was in no taxes either, Billy. Like no yeah, and, and also, yeah. And also figure out a way so that we don't have to pay taxes. <laughs> um, 
So uh, that is going to be the lightheartedness, but yet uh, I think technical deep dive stuff that we're going to get into. But before we do, why don't you just give the listeners um, a backdrop of your background and your firm and what what you do, because I think it's going to be some good groundwork that we can just uh, unpack a bunch of different topics here. Yeah. So uh, I started uh, my career out at, at Morgan Stanley, uh, working in investment banking, then a, a mentor of mine that I still care pretty deeply about. You know, he told me you know, the industry is really going towards the extremes on both ends. So there's going to be a lot of outsourcing of the analytical work, like the stuff that analysts and associates do. But there's going to be a lot more focus on really like kind of the rainmaker side of things. And if you really want to get good at this, you need to learn how to start building relationships because that's harder to teach the older you get. So he said, you know, selfishly, I'd prefer if you stay with the company. So go build a wealth management book. You'll probably end up making more money than you will slugging away for 15 years trying to get to managing director. So I did that with a with a partner that I met in the wealth management business, built about a $300 million book. I left, deployed uh, close to $100 million in, in private equity from some of the clients in energy and technology. Some of those are still percolating today. And I reactivated my investment banking licenses at a firm called Corporate Finance Associates, uh, where I'm now a, a managing director. So it, so, it's kind of it's yeah, kind of come yeah. full circle, and I've I've really kind of stepped back into the into the deal making side of things. Yeah, and I, I just I really focus on radical candor. I mean, it, it's not a unique term, but it is something that I'm passionate about. I like telling people the stuff that they don't want to hear. Um, and I think there's going to be some of that that we're going to be diving into because um, it's going to be fun stuff. But also, like what I thought, what I found very interesting when I uh, reached out to have you on the show was I read one of your articles on Growth Capital. I think it was was it Axial that it was on, and um, yeah, they were a good platform over there. Yeah, and Peter was on my show a couple years ago or something like that. And um, what I what I found interesting about our conversation it was your wealth management, investment banking background, which is very, lends its, uh, let's lends itself to like the whole, hey, your business is an asset. How do we mm-hmm. grow the value of this asset, create more choices? And so therefore with your wealth management and investment banking, I mean, like, like that just com- completely uh, synced up with how we were viewing it. So maybe before we get into some of the, the, the growth capital concepts, what, what's, what's going on in the marketplace? What size deals are you working with? And just kind of maybe you're just your, your two cents of uh, the current state of how things are. Yeah. So we typically, we work with businesses. I'll say what we work with that's less than. So we work in the less than $1 billion transaction size space and big enough or in a situation where an institution will invest. We don't syndicate raises from family offices and individuals. We will do startups that have proven concepts. Maybe they've just hit revenue. They have patents. You know, they have like 50, 60 million invested already type startups. But then the bread and butter is certainly uh, middle market stabilized either growing or declining in a distressed situation, definitely that middle market. And as a firm, 80% plus of the transactions that the firm does are with companies and or owners that have either never sold a business before or have never taken on an institutional capital partner before. So I think a lot of family-owned businesses, a lot of first-time mm-hmm. entrepreneurs that have really grown something that they care about. That are not... That are not uh 
like getting beat in the head all day long with what is your value? What's your multiple? And I mean, it's people that have, you know, they don't have to because <laughs> based on the ownership structure, and I think it's, that's one of the interesting parts about your background and what I've learned and come, uh, become hyper aware of over the last eight years. And so what you mentioned institutional investor a couple of times, why don't you just, what's your definition of that? And give the audience just a little bit of a, of a backdrop a, of what a, that means. It's a business whose profession is investing. So it's beyond that individual. It's a firm that will take capital from individuals and and other companies, and it's their job to invest it. So professional investors, that that's their full-time job. Which could be so many different types of companies or insurance companies or endowments or pension funds or you name Correct. it. Where, and I think one of the big things, and, and, and I talk about this a bunch, where like, it's baked in that they need an internal rate of return and they're investing in an asset class, which is privately held companies, which is why they're going to be investing that. So you and I, as far as the marketplace going on right now, I mean, I, I know we want to get into growth capital and kind of what's going on in that space. But what, you know, as far as like the marketplace going on right now, like what are you seeing for deal activity, for fund flow? Is there industry size companies? I mean, is there, what's, what are you seeing that's, um, I'd say more top of mind of everybody? Well, the the real standout, which I think is just going to continue, is going to be technology because every business business is a technology business now, or at least that's what the capital providers like to see. What I'm cautioning people on, especially you know, kind of outside, I'll talk about the tech and kind of the non tech. Mm-hmm. In the non tech space, what I have told a lot of our clients. Because we get a lot of clients after they've already gotten letters of intent or offers. They say, oh, this offer is really good. Okay, well, yeah, like Joe, business owner, but think about why it's good for them to offer you that much. And don't (laughs) take that that? offer until you understand (laughs) that. And don't no, don't sign the LOI, please, just yet. (laughs) Yeah, you know, kind of the whole one offer is, is no offer and a lot more fatigue from business owners. And some of that fatigue coming from businesses in certain sectors like healthcare get just getting absolutely pounded with unsolicited offers. Hmm. Like if you're in that, if you're in a comp, if you have decent margins and you're in a company that has any decent kind of profile, there's a good chance that you're that you're going to be getting pounded. Yeah, it's uh, I mean the amount of the amount of unsolicited offers I'm seeing are just ridiculous all over the place. I mean. And, and, and it's, and I'm curious on your view of this, because I've, I've talked a lot on the show, Billy, about the, the need for capital to find yield and how big of a problem that is right now. And that is a, like, whether it's a first order impact effect or a second or third, who knows, depending on who you're talking to of, of what the high level of spending is from the government and all the spending across the, the, the globe, there these zero interest rates are pushing people to need to do this. So, I mean, are you seeing that as a reason of like the high fundraisers? I'm just kind of curious, like when you're seeing that, that it definitely flow. is. It it doesn't make it it doesn't make it any easier to actually get those yields though, because you know private credit. There's only so many kinds of private credit deals that you can do. There's only so many kinds of there are only so many opportunities out there. You know, for VC and private equity, you know, there's only so many opportunities out there and 
kind of to one of the reasons why you brought me on the non-control space is becoming an outlet for that simply Mm. because, you know, how long have we talked about the boomers exiting their businesses? (laughs) Since they were born. If it's, it's been quite a long time that that's been a topic of conversation and these private equity guys get paid the big bucks for a reason. It's not like they've, not been deploying. So a lot of those like older kind of transitioning out business owners, that market is getting to be a little bit picked clean. And so you have like, we've got, we've had four engagements this year, you know, representing these business owners that are between 35 and 50 that just, they're not ready to hang it up yet, but they know that there's more potential out there. Mm-hmm. And they're not willing to do a change of control transaction. So that that is a beautiful lead in, Billy. And I think what I, so when I reached out, like this whole non-controlled, like, you know, a lot of people, when they're thinking about selling their business and, and again, hopefully with people that are tuning into the show, they understand like there's a shitload of options <laughs> and like any way you want to paint this picture, depending on what's important to you, you can most likely get it done if you got enough time and energy and resources. And there's not, you don't just have to sell everything. And if you even do a, like the typical private equity is majority, but then there's this non-controlled aspect where I think you just hit on a lot of check boxes where people can wait a second, like, wait, there's other options. So why don't you give your, your definition of non-controlled and just the characteristics of it. And then we can talk about different applications for it. So non-controlled capital is really what it sounds like. You've got these private equity <laughs> love, firms. Love it You've happens. got these private equity firms that believe in investing in companies that have strong management teams that have great growth trajectory ahead of them. They just need to add fuel to the fire. So it's 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 more additive than transformational. So let's talk about like the the mechanics of this too, because like in a no, traditional private equity sale, you're going to sell. 51% or more, and you're going to have to either, there's going to be different deal structure parts of it, earn outs, promissory notes, or and traditionally a rolled equity into that company or the, the portfolio. And it, there's going to be a lot of just layers of just guidance of what they want. Because depending on whether you're a platform company or you're a bolt on, I mean, there's, there's just <laughs> a lot of cooks in the kitchen, which I think freaks out a lot of you know, first, second generation entrepreneurs that have a very clear vision of what they want for the business in their marketplace. So just kind of maybe compare the characteristics of the traditional private equity sale versus what is you, what do you mean by fuel for their potential? So all investment firm, like the days of, and don't get me wrong. I love KKR. I've done several deals with them. They didn't, build the best reputation at the start of things, you know, kind of, you know, you talk about, you know, barbarians at the gate, like the whole RJR, um, Nabisco. Great books, by the way. Great books. Every, every institutional investor wants to be that strategic partner. Now, everyone signals that, but with a majority interest firm, that's going to buy 51%. You have to, there's always a leap of faith that you have to take that, okay, even if we talk to some of their other portfolio companies before we sign this deal, which it's becoming more popular to have to do that as a PE fund, even if we do that, what's to say that we're not the one that they don't? 
Mm -hmm. that they don't, you know, do what what they say they're going to do. And you're you're left with no recourse because 51% is 100% of the votes, essentially. Yeah, so 100%. There is that leap of faith there. They can say whatever they want, but on a whim, they can change the strategy. The what's very popular among middle market private equity, meaning businesses in between 10 and 250 million valuation is for the private equity firm to have a KKR or a Blackstone lined up to buy it at twice the price if they can hit certain metrics without the business owner maybe even knowing that. So you see a lot of these private equity exits going from middle market to upper middle market to bigger market to public. And it's a it's hard to guarantee that you, the legacy of your company stays intact with a large private equity fund because at the end of the day, they have control. Well, think so about how many times you just mentioned fire, that, Billy. Like think about how many times you just think about how many times you just mentioned that it could be sold <laughs> within like a short period of time. I mean, like the ownership and the the control. Yeah, is just it could being... be sold three or four times in five years. Mm-hmm. It, it's those, interesting that happens. I'm actually seeing that I've got multiple clients right now where they're actually get, like in the process with private equity, and they're already they already have someone else teed up, and it's a complete multiple arbitrage for and, yeah. And the it middle could be that team. it could be like we're gonna buy you to sell off your businesses, your business units. Mm-hmm. At, at so, the end of the day, it's up to them. With the non-control capital, you just have to think about it this way. How much of a headache would it be for a non-control partner that doesn't have the votes to compel you to do anything to try any of that stuff? Mm-hmm. It, would, it, would be, it would be make it not worth their time. So they have to be good strategic partners. Yeah, you're forced to. Just based just on by the, the bi- economics of it and based yeah. on the number of votes that they'll carry in the board meetings. They mm-hmm. have to be good strategic partners. Yeah. So their and deals literally don't even make sense unless that's the case. That's the only way that it works. Yeah, because you can't force them to do anything. So let's talk about like what are the well, – like, maybe come up with an example client or size company. Like what, what are the characteristics and as- attributes of growth capital? And then I want to compare. And then what we can do after that, Billy is talk about like, how does that apply? Like where and when would that make sense? And why would you be doing that? But like, first, like let's maybe kind of give a basic example. Like what does it mean to take on growth capital and how would that actually, how would that structure work? So I've got a few examples. So I'll kind of go through these just at a very high level had a $250 million steel manufacturer, like cold rolled steel, a lot of different business units, but it's all steel, a lot of different products. They had a very in-depth succession plan worked out between the father and the son. This is a third generation business. The father got very sick all of a sudden, and the son really wasn't ready to take the reins. So rather than pass, pass the business onto the son prematurely, they talked to a few non-control capital partners that could input like a part-time CEO, CFO that could help the son kind of grow into that role. Interesting. Uh, so the, it's not just like a it's chunk a, it's of, a very it's not just good money. Transition tool. It's a very good transition tool to allow, because the conversation and the, the dynamics of second, first to second, second to third, passing it down between generations it, the non-control capital can often fill that gap. 
if there's a because the timing on whether the next generation's ready or not rarely lines up perfectly with the desire to exit. So, okay, this is super interesting to me because, like, when I think about what you just mentioned, that's more of like an operational, like, roles and W2 management issue than it is an actual capital capital structure issue. So like I think about interim CEOs and all the kind of the transition dynamics of the actual leadership running that versus like growth capital. Like in my mind, yeah, it's it's more like, Hey, you know what? For some reason I can't go to my, my, the convention bank of America is not going to give me a one or $10 million line, whatever it is, or a loan to buy the inventory at advantageous terms and all these covenants and all that kind of stuff. So like, does that make sense? I mean, it, it like, yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing with non-control capital has a bunch of different uses. I'd say that's a real, that's a, a use case that's not discussed enough. Mm, I, I would agree. And, but I do get it because it is a sensitive topic for a lot of businesses. I'm just, I'm just glad that we have a platform where I can give an example like that so that maybe it, it can become a little bit more prevalent because it, it was a great success story for that business. Some of the other more common use cases are to the non-control capital partner comes in and infuses equity to pay down debt mm-hmm. to continue to allow the company to continue to grow. They come in just straight equity infusion to for new hires for you know added expansion, whether that's you know adding additional real estate for different locations, and they can also come in and do what's called a minority recapitalization which is great for these like 35 to 50 year old or anyone who just really wants to keep going, but they've put so much blood, sweat and tears into it, but they haven't really been able to up their lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing because I can relate to that. And a lot of people I can work with, like, like my, my business partner and I and interrupt here for a second, can put some color to it is like growth is expensive. Right. And like so many times these businesses, regardless of how many zeros are on there, like lifestyle creep, where they need the distributions between that financing and growth. I mean, there's only so much capital to fuel the growth. And so they, they run into this pinch point of saying, okay, is it my lifestyle? If I put it back into the business, what's my actual scalability of this? I had a gentleman that was on the on the show. He sold to private equity at the end of last year after going through a bunch of stuff. And he is like, I just looked at my working capital needs for my growth rate. And I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> and so <laughs> And, and like, it, it's like the, people don't understand that, that growth is expensive. So like, it's interesting to be able to hear like how this available tool can free up some cash without selling your soul. It can. And what the non-control firms will typically tell you is that we, for the owners, they'll pay out like for the minority shareholders. Like if you've got, you know, 50 shareholders in a company, but two of them own 40% each they'll pay out like the smaller shareholders, but what they'll typically say is a non-life-changing distribution. Hmm. Some of them will do like a, yeah, like we'll pay 20 million to the owner's pocket. But one, just keep in mind, and this is pretty much for any private equity firm or institutional investor in general, it's going to be more attractive for them always 
for most of their capital to go to working capital in the business rather than paying out shareholders. <laughs> That's I, always I, more attractive. I was Well, I was going to say, so I would like you to give me a list of the people that would be just willing to just wire money right into business owners, bank accounts, and then just continue doing whatever they're doing in the business. <laughs> instead, if, you're, if your business is in certain, is in certain industries, it, it's, it, it is possible. It's not probable. <laughs> Uh, so like if you had a cat, like if you had a 20 million EBITDA AI and machine learning company, we could work something out. (laughs) All right. All right. All right. I should have saw that coming. Um, so let's talk about like, uh, I want to go back to the, the succession like management part, but like, I'm thinking about like, so I've been getting over the last couple of years, Billy, getting real into the financial technical aspect of just businesses and how you can view it as an asset. So that way you can start to make these choices, right? Because I mean, there's so many options. So like when I, I was explaining to a, a friend of mine who owns a business and we we're talking about why valuations are different of like a tech company versus manufacturing, just as an asset, like a sector. And I'm like, well, if you think about how much money and capital you need to scale a manufacturer, equipment and inventory and just your working capital is insane versus a tech where it's all goes to sales and marketing because you build it once. So explain like with maybe just that very high level example, how growth capital fits into that because in the manufacturer, which could have really good potential and it's a good business, but just the scalability of it might be different and how the, like how the cash flow might not be able to fund where, what the true potential is. So for a while, businesses have been divided into sexy, and that's what venture capital is for, and not so sexy, which is makes boxes, nuts Mm -hmm. and bolts, makes water filtration systems, tires, waste professional services. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like all these things that, you know, it's like you, you go to it to Georgia there's a bunch of billionaires in Georgia. How many of them do you think live in Atlanta? <laughs> I know. I mean, not as many I, as in Dalton, which is where the carpet guys are. Mohawk, Shaw. Isn't that funny, man? I uh, so, and even going all the way down to the smallest kind of companies. I, there was this listing on a business brokerage website here in the Twin Cities, and it was a septic pumping company, and it's doing like a few million in revenue and like a million and a half in EBITDA and there's two employees and they just pump shit. And I'm like, that's better margins than a lot of tech companies. And so you have, I say that to say this, the delineation between what's venture capital and what's private equity is a lot more blurry than it used to be. Hmm. What industry people would call mid and late stage venture capital is really the same as the things that we're talking about. The non-control capital specifically, though, is really focused on that, the mid market, very stabilized. You know, we're not really talking about a lot of like the high tech, like Silicon Valley stuff. Mm -hmm. The medium and late stage venture is going to be like you're talking 150, 200 million check size for a mm-hmm. company like Sam Sarah or, you know, some of these other like big players in the internet of things and things like that, where now like a KKR and Blackstone are getting involved on that on the venture side. Is that also, like, I see that as just a pure economic 
economics play too. Like they have to get bigger returns because of the the marketplace too. I mean, there, there there's just no place to find decent risk adjusted rate of return. And so like, yeah, the, and the the Sand Hill Road like venture capital guys and like the New York Boston private equity guys are really really good friends now. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I mean, they always were, but the crossover is a lot larger now. Would you say they're more like frenemies than they are like rooting for each other? Uh, no, in different I wouldn't sports? say that, that enemies is any part of it. Oh, really? Because uh, for and again, I can't speak for the entire private equity industry, but it, it seems to me that it would be somewhat of a no brainer for a KKR Blackstone Carlisle, Carlisle less so, but for like KKR Blackstone to come in and invest alongside Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia, because I mean, look at their track, look at those guys track records. Yep. And I mean, it's kind of the, kind of the, the dog chasing its tail a little bit when you get into names like that, because it just facilitates the higher and higher and higher valuation. Because as soon as you see the names, well, of course mm. it's gotta be a winner. Mm-hmm. So and I many find- times they, they absolutely are, but it just like, it just continues to build on itself. Yeah. And, and there's and- no doubt that that's a, that's a, that's a calculated move when you're thinking about the names rather than just the, just the value problem. Well, I think about just like this, just honestly, like when you think about there's this, there's a stat that I can't ever forget Billy. And it was uh, from the U S census bureau. And I can't wait till the new one comes out. Cause this is um, damn near 10 years old, but it was talks about just the, there's only 6 million privately held companies with employees. Like, I mean, that's not very many and they employ, you know, God, it's 120 million Americans and there's only like 20,000 over hundred million and you're going, okay, well, so then everybody's else is private equity backed or they're public. And so like I, when I think about how this relates to the topic we're talking about of growth capital is that there's this whole like Pac-Man, right? You just have the big Pac-Man going down and then it's just, it's like that, mm-hmm. that whole experience and growth capital is a way to level up. So that way you don't have to just be, constrain at your own cash flow to grow and you can't go to a traditional bank and, and you know so these are people that are listening to regardless of how many zeros all these concepts apply there was a gentleman on my show not a moment a year ago that does growth capital for like you know a couple hundred thousand dollars in in cash flow up to a million so i mean the, the concepts apply but it it gives you this additional room so like explain some use cases for growth capital like why would someone like What's going on in the business or the industry or their situation where they're going, okay, this is like an example of why I should look at this and how that will compare to some of its alternatives. So uh, this will just be a very, very general example that applies to a lot of different kinds of businesses. So, you know, let's say the business, you know, five, 10 years old, maybe, maybe it's, it's older than that, but there's a lot of potential in the business you just you may be constrained by cash flow. Like for example, with this infrastructure plan coming along, if you're a if you're a telecom infrastructure provider or like developer, you know, like laying fiber to the home, internet cables, things like that, there's no question that you, that you could use some more capital to go after these things. There, you know, if you've got certain like market events, like for example, e-commerce or like warehouse 
have like warehouse heavy businesses or distributors of, of certain mm-hmm. things. It, there's no question that what we saw in the pandemic is that the consumers will consume regardless of like what's going on with the markets because it's become very clear and, you know, say it ain't so, but there's the gap between the haves and the have nots in the, in this country is so huge, but the haves are the ones that, that are going to be generating the revenue for your business and they're going to be fine. You know, again, say it ain't so I wish it were a different scenario, but you know, a a lot of businesses are going to be looking at, the question of do I need to sell this thing or you like how or how do I grow it? Because mm-hmm. there's there if you've got excitement about the things that could be, but you're struggling to find the capital to go throw at it in a meaningful way. Of course, you know we don't just make it mm-hmm. rain on things without having projections <laughs> to support it. Unless you have a AI twenty million EBITDA business, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, then the you can take them on. And those are nuts. <laughs> But yeah, you know, looking at that, looking at, are you constrained by your interest payments on a, on a business that's otherwise very attractive and very profitable? Like if you look at your net income, is your EBITDA like 50, a 50% increase to your net income? When you add back that interest, you know, if you're on, you know, 5 million in net income, if you, if you've got two and a half million in interest payments a year could be a great option. Well, and how about like any, any examples on like working capital? Cause I think, you know, a lot of the listeners in, I've been hearing me talk a lot about that because I mean, that's one of your biggest constraints to growth. I mean, you know, the, the ability to say, okay, here's what I, I mean, even back up, let me back up a second to Billy is like, I see so many times that like, and this is, this was a mind of my dad's issue too. You go, okay, well, this is our vision for the business, but we were never finance people, right? So like we, we just had this vision and we thought we could just sell our way to that vision. <laughs> it's just like so wrong, but you got, you have to like, look at your financials and my, my partner and I at Arcona were talking about projecting out your three statement model to be able to see your distributions, your taxes and your ability to generate cash. And like, literally, where are you going to run out of money? Cause you can like really grow yourself into bankruptcy if you don't you understand can. how that work, that working capital works. So like, how are you, like, how does the growth capital help teach some of that discipline to, to be able to say, okay, like I've got this vision, but I don't know how actually I can realize that whether I have the money or not. So the, the first thing that usually happens is very, very few of these non-control transactions happen without the owner being represented by an investment bank. Because very few of them will even understand it. So the the actual investment firms, you know, they they really do have an uphill battle on trying to preempt any sort of bid process. So that the first thing that first thing is, you know, they're going to have us or a firm like us as an advisor to really help them with that. The second thing, which is very important for the non-control capital providers, is that they mandate like a, a real board with reporting requirements. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be very helpful to you in in making that happen. And you'll you'll realize, you know, quickly that there are a lot of things that you don't know as a business owner, but that it's not as hard as it might first appear. Well said. Honestly, like, and you know what I said uh, yesterday to, it was either a client or on a show, I can't remember. And 
I said, you know what ends up happening is that people end up on my show after they sold the private equity and they're like, huh, I actually understand that my vision's better than the PE firm and I have a better operation because I actually have ran the business. I understand my operations and execution better. I just didn't know my financials that well. And now I understood them because I went through the, the, the gauntlet to actually understand this. And now that I've got that training, I wish I had my damn company back. <laughs> I'm just yep. like, yeah, that about sums it up, right? It's, yeah, uh, and they, it, it, to be sure, those are things that it's always a best practice to have all that under control before you go through the process. And for some people, and actually for a lot of people, it doesn't happen that way. It happens the other way around. That I mean, that is one of the things that brings value to the table when you hire an investment bank. We're very candid with our clients. So, you know, at, at our own peril to our own pocketbooks. But if like, if you're not in a position to sell, we're not going to force you through a process and just, and just take a fee. Well, and, you, and because it's of, not, it's just, it's too much of a headache, like all the way around and no fees really worth the, the hit to your reputation. If yeah. someone realizes, oh, like they just forced me to do this. They told me what I wanted to hear. What are some of the, the, what's the radical candor that you guys end up relaying is there a theme of a handful of things that you're like if you know the marketplace knew these things it could be more efficient yeah a lot of it has to a lot of it's more guidance for sellers rather than buyers because i mean we at least Mm -hmm. have some say and and advice that sellers will listen to we work with buyers sometimes not not most of the time though so really you just you need to be able to understand what they're getting out of it, what the other side of the table is getting out of it. You need to be under, be able to understand their vision and 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 why they're they're putting the, that number in front of you. So that's you know, step one. If they're not willing to explain that to you, that's a yellow flag. The second thing is really, if you're going to go through one of these processes, just really lean into it. It's not a passive process. And if you treat it like a passive process, it, 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 you're not going to get the best result. You don't Sometimes just all you of a may sudden get like get a, a result. You, you don't just get a button where all of a sudden you have a bigger line of credit and your your yeah. interest payments go from 2.5 down to zero and you're like yeah. still off um, and running. <laughs> it's extremely important if you want to sell your business for you to extract any of the value of the business that's up here and put it in the hands of your employees in a way that can be repeated. Mm-hmm. Business, businesses where a lot of the values up here in the owner's head, it's it's not going to be a it's not going to be a good outcome, unless you want to stay on the business for another five years. So, what are the when you're going through a process like that? So, you hire an investment banking firm like yourself. You're helping figure out okay, where is this capital coming from? Different institutions. What are the terms tied to it? Is this like is it certain interest rates? But is there just kind of like the like here's the here's the here's the structure of the loan or the line of credit or the equity with these stipulations or like what are the different kind of combinations that you can look at? So uh, we'll start with equity first. So the main point, the main terms that you look at when equity is being invested in that can either be non-control or that can be someone buying a controlling stake in your company. The main point is going to be how much, how much of the company you're requiring. Now, what's often confusing to business owners is that the valuation of your business, 
is going to be lower if someone's buying a minority stake. If they're buying a controlling interest, the valuation is going to be higher because they have more rights and more power in addition to the capital that they're investing. They have more control of their own destiny, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that is called a control premium. That That is typically a decent negotiation there's usually not a lot of contention around that because that control premium is usually included in whatever term sheet or letter of intent that you sign. Mm-hmm. The other aspect, and this one is typically the most contentious if cash into pockets is really an issue. So again, this goes back to the investor or the buyer is going to be much more attracted to being able to at the extreme, 100% of their capital is going into the business to grow it. On the other extreme, you have the seller, which usually would prefer for 100% of the proceeds to go into the pockets of the shareholders. (laughs) So that's typically something that can kill a deal because that's usually not when you sign a letter of intent and then start the due diligence process to go to a term sheet, you usually don't have that breakdown in the letter of intent. It has to be decided yeah, after that. The other, the last part, which is, which can also be contentious is, is any earnout. So let's say I think I'm the seller. I think my business is worth a hundred million. I believe in it very, very much. You're the buyer. You obviously want to get the best deal possible for your investors. So, you know, we come to terms, I'm, you're, I'm stuck at a hundred million. I'm stuck. You're stuck at 90 million. I'm stuck at a hundred million and we can't move forward. Well, then what you say is the buyer is, oh, well, seller, if you believe in your business so much, then let's call this 102.5 million. And if you can hit these targets that you're, that you believe in so much, then you can get that extra two and a half million on top of what you had asked for. Mm -hmm. And some sellers at that point, have enough deal fatigue, quote unquote, that they just throw up their hands and they get frustrated with it. When in reality, that actually is a reasonable term to include. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, earnouts, as those are called, they can get, I mean, they're like with any term, there's possibility to frustrate anyone. (laughs) You know, I'm stuck on, you're stuck on 90 million. Oh, well, 40 million of it's going to be an earnout. Yeah, no, sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That would be frustrating for anyone. Super helpful. And then in those term sheets, I'm assuming that's where you're saying, okay, you got to have a board. This is your financial reporting and all that kind of stuff that's going to be tied to just because it's about the underwriting of the risk, right? Especially if they're not controlling it. So I I can only imagine the underwriting process is like a shitload more scrutinizing because of just the fact that it is. You're not. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Way, way more fun. And then there's, there's the possibility for, um, representations and warranties insurance, Mm -hmm. which is not, in my opinion, not utilized enough in the middle market space. Firms like Gallagher, Aon, large insurance carriers will actually do a very deep audit of the deal and the terms, and it allows a a large portion of that risk to be offloaded onto an insurer. Yeah, it's amazing, Billy. When I when I found out about that years ago, like I mean, 
I was talking to my partner about it. They used it in their deal. And they, I mean, they were able to, you know, avoid millions of dollars going into escrow because they were able to just say, Hey, like, like the insurance company went in there, took all the deals. So like everybody's underwriting the same level of risk in the business plan, the financials. And I mean, I think the, <laughs> the moral of the story continues to come back to if you have clear numbers and a clear plan, you can tell the story better. And then everybody can, the insurance people can yeah. underwrite it. All this stuff comes within, comes with, with the ability to be able to say, Hey, here's the, here's the reason behind all this. When you're besides equity, what other applications, because I mean, whether it's debt or equity or the combination of debt and equity to get to that capital structure to be able to fuel the growth, what are you seeing people use this for? I mean, is it inventory? Is it buying buildings? Is it, uh, I, I think about right now, and um, you and I are going to talk about this offline, but there's a presentation that I, that I know people are asking about this to roll up companies and how to how to be able to use growth capital to roll up companies because they're not going to go down to Fifth Third Bank or anything like that and get a line of credit to do that kind of stuff. It's going to have to come from somewhere else. So it's often it's often used for a couple of different scenarios, and these are just the most common. It actually is pretty common to use this to roll up businesses. The non-control capital partners that I've worked with and the market in general, they really prefer if they have a company that they can invest in time and time again over the next three to five years through a strategy like that, it, it makes their job a lot easier. So that strategy is very, very attractive for non-control capital. Essentially, the way that that works is that they just invest dollars that would equal their pro rata share of the existing business in the combined business. So they would front that. That's usually what happens. So the other very common scenarios are recapitalizing the business. So that's, you know, paying down debt. The non-control capital company investment companies can also show their balance sheets to lenders to get better terms uh, for their portfolio companies. That's relatively common. You also have just infusions for working capital. So you need to make some more hires. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you've taken the step of getting into a lease. You know, maybe you've got 20,000 square feet you're only occupying 10,000 with your current staff and it's time to make that move and implement that and hire another 50 bodies. This is going to be a super selfish question here because really the, the moral of kind of everything that I've been saying, like the, both the crossover of venture mm -hmm. capital and private equity flexibility is really the name of the game in the private capital markets at this point. The investors are a lot more flexible now than they used to be because they, they really have to be. Explain why. Well, there's over a trillion dollars in dry powder, which just means it's not invested in the target, which would be these operating businesses or loans, whatever that's sitting on the sideline. So if there you mentioned that, you know, that statistic, it seems like, you know, so few private businesses are, are available when you think about mm -hmm. it, you have to start looking at, well, so how do we deploy this money if there's so many of us going after this one, like kind of in a box, like leveraged totally. buyout, like let's buy a controlling stake. Yeah, man. And like, and that's where like, I think about like, 
So then I go, I always go, so why is that? Well, it's because these pension funds and insurance companies and all these places that have all these liabilities can't afford to pay their liabilities because they can't go buy a bunch of treasuries <laughs> and, and pay them. Yes, I mean, it's correct. just absurd. And so I want to go back and I'll say that, like, I got this super, it's, I don't know if it's a selfish question, but just like, this is totally from my own curiosity of, so since uh, building out our fractional CFO services and my, so my partner ran, um, she had a fractional CFO business for decades and ran, ran the shared services of a private equity firm. And like, literally he's been doing this for decades of just the three statement model, looking at the trailing 12 months, tying them together, forecasting to the future. So he can see cash distributions, taxes, and actually the value of the business and tie it to an internal rate of return, regardless of whether it's PE owned or not. So that's, that's what we've been doing, Billy. And like zero people forecast out their three statements. <laughs> and I think about like, I mean, like it's so clear when you can go, well, this is where I need the money and how I need the money and how, what I need my working capital to be. And this is why it like, I can't even imagine, like, what is your, I just am so shocked, Billy, I guess is my point. I can't believe it. And I'm going, so, cause I always thought my dad and I were an anomaly. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, there's a lot of people that look at the income statement, look at their bank account and they go, we good or we're not good. And how, like when people are coming to you, like where on that spectrum are people's clarity on that stuff? I mean, it, it's it's really all over the place. Um, certainly on the smaller side, you think uh, 25 million in revenue or less, we rarely will have forecasts. Uh, I mean, certainly not audited financials either. Once we get start getting over that mark and into the 50 million range, we start seeing pretty consistent uh, projections, it, they may need some tweaking. Income statement projections. And then we also see income some, statement projections are all three financial statements. All three. Ooh, I like it. We see we we do see some, but I think that it's a product of our network. Yeah. I yeah. think because a lot of the businesses that we get to sell come from like very like high level CPAs. Or CFOs and, and attorneys. Like, yeah, and I think about what. So they're they're already they're probably working with the clients on that. And yeah. then for the most part, if you've got over fifty million in revenue, we almost require you to have your last. If you don't have audited financials for at least your last year to be audited. That makes sense, Billy. And, and I think about like as because a year and a half ago we weren't building out our CFO services. We just had our training part of the business, and then no one was able to just do what we were teaching. So then like when they kept asking, we when then we would look at the financials and we couldn't see inside any of these companies. And like, I don't know if it's a factor of like, cause you mentioned the 50 million mark. And like what I've noticed is again, that's only like 2% of the companies that are above that. And then if someone actually had a financial leader that could do that stuff, they would, I mean, you're talking a few hundred thousand dollars and that's sometimes more than the owner's making. So then there's like this massive inefficiency in the marketplace where again, like I think about the Pac-Man example, we need these companies to get bigger so that way we can grow value for everybody. But there's this massive like, and that's where I see this growth capital opportunity to say like, okay, we need to fuel these companies to get the resources to be able to actually capitalize on the opportunity instead of just being lifestyle companies. Absolutely. And the one thing that hits home with a lot of, business owners that we talk to about non-control capital, especially in that, you know, either younger, like that 35 to 50, or they just aren't ready to hang the shingle up yet. Is you think about it this way, 
you get to you get to take a pretty decent sized check home with you now. And then in three to seven years, you get to take a really big check home with you. And, and get partners along the way. And I think I, you know, I think not only for like capitalizing on industries that are going to be exploding for the trends that are shifting around right now, but like <clears throat> you and I mentioned it a little bit, like acquisitions, like I, I see Billy, like there's like, cause we work in all these different sizes, all, all these different industries. And like the people that end up kind of gravitating towards us are more of the upper end of like their industry or the kind of the size bracket. And it's like, oh my God, the opportunity, if you guys get your stuff together, you could be rolling up companies because of how mature your platform now is. And I think about like that, mm-hmm. that, that ability to go raise some money from someone like, you know, like help with your guys' help to raise that growth capital. It's like, oh my God, like you could go out there instead of having to sell. Cause like, you know, a lot of that, in order to do that in the past, the private equity firms would court these business owners to say, hey, why don't you sell to us? And then you could go lead that charge but then you've already taken most of your chips off the table versus in this situation, mm-hmm. you can go, well, why don't you just roll up all the whatever manufacturing company or services company or whatever it is, because you've already done the hard work and now you just need the capital and the people. So you see, are you seeing, yeah. are you seeing like more of those examples where people are doing it for specific, specifically for acquisitions or is that a small chunk? Of yeah, that? that's typically private equity firms will give like a two, one or two page teaser with their investment criteria. So when you look at either the dedicated, like we only do non-control and like the, the firms that do a bunch of different strategies, but non-control is one of them. Usually when you're in that non-control section of the teaser in the top two or three is acquisitions. Hmm. It, it just makes so much sense because if you think about if you are the the good person in your industry, the rest of the people, I mean, it's really just going to be the 80, 20 or the 90, 10 rule, right? I mean, like everybody else is re- ready and like the whole boomer situation, like, and the people you said are exhausted. Like if someone's got energy in an industry, regardless of the industry, like the rest of their industry is got the same demographic numbers as the entire US, right? Like I get, there's a client of ours that's in the sign manufacturing. It's like, he's 44. I'm like, the rest of your industry is 65. <laughs> so like, as and long as you got some energy. From the non-control guy's perspective, uh, in an acquisition strategy, like you got a manufacturer that they're going to buy into, uh, you know, let's say they're going after, you know, vertical integration. So they're going after their suppliers, mm-hmm. distributors. Well, who who's more likely to get the, those targets to the table us the investors who these distributors and suppliers who have never met or the owner who's had a 20-year relationship with them 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah that's a have you ever seen it where like you got the littler guys or gals buying the bigger guys or gals that happened i mean that that's relatively rare regardless of whether non-control capital is involved um it does happen i love it Billy, this has been a this has been fun. I mean, if people are still listening, it's because they 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 geek out on this stuff. And man, it's like once you get that vision and you like and you get the taste of this, I swear, it's people go, okay, how do I get there? And these are the mechanics of like how to get there because you you know just the sell more stuff to get there and work harder is not an option sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and this is in this is pretty representative of the kind of conversation that we have with clients. 
before we start the process just to understand which options they actually know about mm -hmm. and which ones they may not have heard. And sometimes that requires a lot of a lot of lift to educate them on like what actually goes into these different options. But at the end of the day, the right option and the best option is, is what we're after. We, we do pretty much everything custom and it's just better to do things that way. I, amen. And I will, I will say also that like, you know, I remember like seven, eight years ago, Billy, when I was sitting on the, the side after we'd sold and I was like, what happened? I just kind of like a little jaded about it. And I'm still like, there's still a lot of, I would have done things differently, but I'm not, I'm not upset for the reasons that I was back then. And it's more of like, it was truly an education thing. It was like, if I would have known how this works, it's like, like you had mentioned with the earnout, like it's not that people are always trying to screw you. You just don't understand the pieces of the, of the chessboard. You think you're playing checkers. And I think that the education can like help you know, even the conversations that you have with people, like all that stuff helps make the market more efficient. So that way people can have more productive conversations. I, I very much appreciate you coming on the show. Two questions before appreciate we uh, you having me. appreciate. Uh, so two questions. One is I ask everybody what the word intentional means because the name of the show and I love that word and I love hearing people's responses. So what is the word intentional mean to you? So intentional, I'll start. Intention is what your goals are rooted in. It's the it's the root it's the root emotion and that kind of underneath layer that, that really helps drive you to your goals. I like it. If I wake up every morning and my intention is to provide a safe, healthy, comfortable environment for my family, I'm going to approach today a lot differently than, oh, my intention is just to make money. Hmm, I like that a lot. Second question is, where do people find you, your company, more information, and get in touch with you? Uh, so my name's Billy Amberg. The name of the firm is Corporate Finance Associates. The website is www.cfaw.com. That's charliefoxtrotalphawhiskey.com. And you can find me at email with just my first initial and my last name, which is bamberg at cfaw.com. Billy, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it very much. Appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks for tuning in that episode with Billy. I I love it because the topic is so important. When you think about getting to your goals for your company and realizing that vision that you have for your business, funding that growth is going to be crucial and funding it with the right type of structure so that way you're able to use the cash flow to grow and you're investing in things that are growing the value of your company. And I think that this whole sector of non-controlled growth capital is something that everybody needs to think about, at least just to consider so you can weigh the options between traditional bank financing and or selling a controlling interest in your company. And it gives you another, again, another thing to compare the different options for and then understanding how that compares to your timeline and your objectives. And obviously, if you've got any kind of questions around your timeline and your and your ability to maximize value towards that long-term vision that you have, go check out the Intentional Growth online course and training, Arcona.io. we got tons of material on there. And there's also a bunch of material from the five principles videos on the Intentional Growth page, as well as the curriculum. So if you want to dive in and understand like, what are you going to be learning in there, I just, I just truly believe that if you go through the course and the training, you'll understand where you're trying to go and what that timeline is going to be and how you're going to need to fund the growth to be able to get there. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.